You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation 6. And if you don't have a Bible, look in the seats in front of you. You can find Revelation 6 on page 1031. And as we arrive at Revelation 6, just get ready for the crazy. I mean, the first five chapters have had some challenging concepts, but we've navigated those. But as we arrive at Revelation 6, this is when it all starts. We'll rapidly see 144,000. We'll rapidly see beasts and antichrists. We'll rapidly see 666 and a lot of angelic visions and things that are very difficult for us to understand. We'll learn about the abyss. We'll learn about two witnesses. We'll learn about Armageddon and even something called the millennium. And so as we're at the doorstep of that, we have to acknowledge the fact that it's going to get a little complicated. But I want to just say at the onset that I'm going to be taking the same approach to Revelation 6 through 22 that I've taken from Genesis to Jude. The same method of interpretation for all of those books is the same method that we apply to these chapters. We want to be consistent. Now, I'll pause also and say that as I unpack this, and even Revelation 6 this morning, I'm probably going to draw conclusions that are different than yours. I'm going to draw conclusions that were different than mine before I began studying this amazing book. But what I'm trying to model to you is not a system that I brought to my study that I'm trying to make the text fit, but instead coming away with conclusions that I've unpacked from the study of Scripture. And so I hope that's what you see, that even this morning as we walk through Revelation 6 and the, the six seals, that you'll see just simply how I got there, rather than a number of quotes of pastors or authors or referencing models. That should always be the way that we study Scripture. Now, of course, as we go throughout Revelation, if you have questions, I had somebody come up and ask questions in between service. Those are great because what they do is they challenge me to either further get confidence in what I believe or realize that there might have been some blind spots. So I welcome your questions. I welcome your feedback and comments. But I ask you to engage. Let's partner together by studying the text ourselves and coming to conclusions that not only are grounded in Revelation, but all of Scripture. So as we look at Revelation 6, my question that I want to propose to you is, what fuels you? And some of you might be sarcastic and say Gatorade. But what fuels you? What, what motivates you? And if the answer to that question is anything other than Christ, it's deficient. You might imagine that these seven churches that were the original audience of the book of Revelation by now after five chapters would say, yes, it's Christ. I mean, after all, he's wearing a white robe. He's got white hair. He's got eyes of fire and a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his feet are like burnished bronze and his face is reflecting like the sun in full strength and he holds the seven churches uh, in the, he walks in the middle of them. He holds the seven angels of the churches in his hand and we could go on and on. He's the one worthy to be able to break the seals and open the book and to authoritatively administrate it. So the churches are probably answering this question what fuels and motivates you by saying, Jesus! 
And I hope we as Christians would say that. But the follow-up question is, who is the Jesus that motivates you? Perhaps it's a Jesus that was taught to you by parents or grandparents. Perhaps he's a Jesus that really was foundational in your church that you attended growing up. Maybe it's books that you've read. Maybe it's theology. Maybe you went to Bible college. But, but who is the Jesus that you say motivates you? And what's amazing about the book of Revelation is this Jesus will stretch us. And I think the first point of the Holy Spirit in revealing Jesus as he is in the book of Revelation is to shake us. This Jesus should move and shake us first rather than draw us to cuddle up beside him. We should be hesitant to approach this Jesus. This Jesus should cause, no matter how many decades we've been saved or how much schooling you have or how many books you've read or how many times you've studied Revelation, this Jesus should shake us. But then he should fuel us and motivate us. And so I pray as we begin this section of Revelation that is complicated, that those two objectives would be achieved. Look at the big idea in your notes. The breaking of the seals reveals the authority Christ has over everything and everyone and challenges us to relate to him appropriately. Let me read Revelation 6 and then we'll unpack it together. The Apostle John writes in verse 1, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Would you underline that phrase? That's going to be important. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the living creature say, Come! And out, of, out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius. Three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every, everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? First question we need to ask about the Christ of Scripture is, how does Christ relate to bad things? How does Christ relate to bad things? The scene of chapter 5 continues. The Lamb has been pronounced worthy. He has taken the scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne, and now he's about to break the seals and administrate the contents of the book. Remember, when it comes to prophets, and the quote will come up on the screen, it's not ultimately about the details of what they're describing. It's ultimately about what those details teach. And so, of course, we continue to wrestle with the details of the prophet describing his vision, but that's not the end game. We're not to be bogged down by all of the details. We're instead to be able to use the details to see clearly what the prophet is teaching. And what he's doing here by showing the seals is showing how God pours out his judgment on creation. That's important, and I would encourage you to write down the the seals... And the details that they reveal are the judgments that God is pouring out on creation. And what's interesting is the way that he begins to unpack this. Look at verse 2. It says, oh, actually verse 1. The lamb opened, you see what it says, one of the seals. Literally in the original, it is one of the seven. And what's interesting about this description is it's different than the remaining six. The remaining six in the original will say second, third, fourth, fifth, which sounds like sequence, but he starts by saying he picked one of the seals. I think what this does is it shows the readers that these are not sequential events, meaning one doesn't have to take place before two, and then two have to take place before three. That's not the point. In fact, I would submit to you that the four seals of the four horsemen are actually happening simultaneously from Genesis 3 to the end. I hope to show that to you here in just a moment, but I would show you that the rest of Scripture actually has another event with four colored horses. You can write down Zechariah 1 and verse 6. That judgment, just like other judgments like are described in chapter 6, are judgments that are being poured out on individuals or people groups. And these judgments have been and are continuing to be poured out by God on creation. To show that, let's begin by looking at each horse. Verse 2, there was a white horse. John describes the one who ride on it as being given a bow and then given a crown. Do you see it in the text? It says that he is going out to conquer and to conquer and conquering and to conquer. And so we we might, from the first five chapters, conclude that this is describing Jesus. It's a white horse. He'll be described as coming on a white horse later. He's wearing a crown. He's conquering and to conquer. But I don't think this is Jesus. In fact, Jim Hamilton says in his commentary on Revelation, this is the messianic pretender. Would you write that down? This is someone who is pretending to be like Jesus. If you look at the other three horses and the three riders, they're describing judgment very clearly. 
So why would this writer be any different? And the judgment, I think, that God has given to the world as a result of Adam and Eve's sin is the world system. The world system that promises to do what only Jesus can do, to satisfy, to save. The world system tells you that it will fulfill your lusts of your eyes and your lusts of your, 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 your pride of life and the lust of your flesh. The world system tells you that it will deliver on its promises, that that job will satisfy you, that that relationship will satisfy you, that that new car will satisfy you, that new neighborhood that you can move into will satisfy you. He promises in the world system to deliver, but it always is empty, isn't it? Any of us wake up on Monday after the Super Bowl win and be so excited, but then just kind of be like, okay, well, now what do we do? Anything this world system has to offer does not ultimately satisfy us the way that we were designed to be satisfied. And it will not save us. And so the first judgment that I think God poured out on creation is this messianic pretender. The second one is in verse 3. It's a red horse. And this one is said that they can, this rider can come and can actually kill take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and he was given a great sword. This seems to be describing war, violence. Let me ask you this question. Has there been war and violence since Genesis 3? Is there war and violence today in our era? This is evidence of the judgment of God on creation Verse 3 says, a third seal is opened, and there is a black horse. And it's interesting, the description that's given. There's a scale here. And one of the living creatures says that a, a, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And one of the ancient historians says that this was about 8 to 16 times the going rate in the Roman Empire. This is economic disaster. This is when necessities are no longer available. And let me ask you this question. Has that taken place since Genesis 3? Has it happened in our country just two years ago? God's judgment being poured out on creation includes economic disaster. Now, what's interesting is as you look at this, it says that there's these things can be, that can be bought for this tremendous amount of wealth, but then look at what it says at the end. There's a, a, another command from the one that's in the midst of the four living creatures. It says, do not harm the oil and wine. Do you see it in the text? What this means is that the pouring out of judgment is going to be limited. We haven't seen a worldwide famine, have we? We haven't seen worldwide plagues that actually affect every human being. This is simply describing that God has judged the earth since Genesis 3 in a way that keeps us in some parts of the world from being able to enjoy economic necessities. Then the fourth horse verse 8 is a pale horse, the one who rides on it is death and then Hades follows. It says famines, plagues, wild beasts, swords, and this is just death from just creation. Getting old. Famines, plagues, beasts. It can be nations. It can be actual animals. 
People will die, they have died, they continue to die, and this is part of God's judgment on the earth. But look at what it says. There's a limit to this as well. It says that this death and Hades were given authority over fourth of the earth. Again, this isn't saying literally 25% of the world's creation. It's just simply John's way of saying that it doesn't happen at a global level. Now, what's interesting about this is that if they're all happening simultaneously, we understand that what's happening as these horses are revealed is it's not escalating. It's not getting worse. And I think that's what God is revealing to John and to those seven churches and to us. In fact, let's take a little Bible interpretation exercise. If you were in that original audience of those seven churches and and how we talked about them in chapters two and three, when you think about conquering and Nikao or Nike, who, who do you think the Roman citizens would have thought of other than the Roman Empire? That the Roman Empire conquers and goes out to conquer. As they looked around their own life context, remember, unless they were part of the trade guilds and submitted to the worship of local gods, they would be uh, kept from economic ability to purchase things. As they're hearing all of these horses, they're probably thinking, oh, these are from the headlines of our day and age. Do you think they would have heard this and said, oh, this must be the last seven years of redemptive history? I don't see how that would be understood from the text. It's interesting that the Christians in the Middle Ages reading this would have said, huh, sounds like our day and age. Reformation sounds like our day and age. People in the 20th century, our day and age. 21st century today, wow, that sounds like today. There are bad things that happen because of sin and that are expressions of God's judgment upon the earth. But I want us to notice something beyond the bad things. Notice who opens. Look at verse 3 and 5 and 7. It says, he opens, pointing back to verse 1, and who is it? The lamb. The lamb is the one who has authority, the one who administrates all of the details that are being poured out. Now, I think because of chapter 5 that what John is drawing attention to is the period between Jesus' ascension after he was slaughtered, chapter 5 says, and after he was able to stand, chapter 5 says. And so he's taking the big picture of what's happened since Genesis 3 till the second coming, but he's focusing in to make it more practical to that original audience and every generation following that that, listen, the patterns continue. It's the lamb who authorizes and administrates it. Verse six, the lamb is the one who is the voice in the midst who continues to give commands. He declared it so and he is executing judgment on the earth. Friends, there's ramifications of sin, isn't there? Adam and Eve sinned, but their sin continues to affect both God's people as well as those who are not God's people. It affects all of creation. Remember growing up and being on sports teams, remember that one teammate that we'll just call sweet and special that would always be messing around during practice and what would coach say? Everybody on the line. But you'd say, but I didn't do it. Everybody on the line. There are ramifications of sin that affect more than just the one who sinned. And I think this is reminding that original audience as well as us that when bad things happen, 
It is the judgment of God being poured out on creation, but it is the lamb who is administrating it. Second question to ask of the Christ of Scripture that is revealed in chapter 6, how does Christ relate to Christian persecution? So you can imagine the original audience would have heard these four categories of bad things that are happening in their world. And they say, okay, we, we can see that. But, but what about Christian persecution where followers of Christ are targeted? And I think that's where this fifth seal comes, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar. By the way, that's interesting, isn't it? They're not on the altar. They're under the altar. It says, the souls of those who had been slain. Now, I have to tell you, I always read this to say these are the people who had been martyred. And I always thought it was those who were martyred during the seven years of tribulation. But again, when you're looking at the text and you're looking at the details that John gives and you're looking at the rest of Scripture, I I don't think that's the case. It's interesting, when you look at verse 11, it says, until the numbers of the brothers should be complete who would be killed as they themselves had been. The word killed is the word translated slaughtered to describe the lamb back in chapter 5, but it's also used elsewhere in Scripture, not literally for killing. Would you go back to Romans 8? Remember the exercise. We don't just read it for us now. We start with them then. We look at the rest of Scripture And when we do that, we come to the conclusion that just because the Bible says something about killed and slaughtered, especially in prophetic literature, it doesn't have to mean literally that. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sleep to be what? Slaughtered, same Greek term. The apostle Paul had not been executed for his faith, had he? He's describing the fact that as Christians living out the righteous standard of God, we will be public enemy number one of the world. We will be persecuted. Some of us might even be executed, but I think it's a term that includes all of it. Let me give you a little exercise for us today to see whether or not you could agree with this concept. What happens if you in your workplace or in your neighborhood or on social media or in the classroom stand up and dogmatically say that marriage is limited to a biological man and a biological woman and anything outside of that is not marriage? Now let's be careful before we start to get cynical and put on our Christian patriotic hats. What happens if you post on social media that there's no distinction between sexuality and gender? Sexuality is gender, and gender is sexuality. And that the Bible has created us as one or the other. And what we feel or what we want to be doesn't change that. What happens if you post that on social media? What happens if you stand up in the workplace and you say, listen, life begins at conception, And the intentional taking of a life of a baby in the womb is the murder of that child. How will the world respond to you? There will be suffering. There will be persecution. And in some situations, you might even lose your life. The fact is, is that these individuals in the fifth seal are the believers, I believe, of all time. These are the ones who have placed their faith in God, looking forward to Christ, or their faith in Christ, looking back to his completed work. 
And they have either lost their lives or experienced suffering and persecution for boldly declaring in love the truth of God's word. And they are crying out with a loud voice, which by the way, Mark 5 is a great parallel. The same verb occurs. This is the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes, and it says that he shrieked and he drew attention to himself. You could not help but see the demon-possessed man in the Gerasenes because of this verb. He's, He's screaming. And the saints are yelling. They're getting the attention of the Lamb. And look at what they're saying. They're saying, how long? You ever feel like that? As you look at the world around you, as you look at your own sin, do you ever get to a place where you ask the question, how long? So have Christians for all time. You can write down Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 2. He asked, how long? The psalmist in Psalm 89, 46 asked, how long? The disciples in Acts chapter 1, as Jesus had just resurrected, they said, how long until you restore Israel? How long? How long? How long? This is a normal and reasonable question. But what motivates and fuels these saints to ask the Lamb, how long is not the judgment and the avenging? What motivates them is what occurs first. Look at Revelation 1, or sorry, 6 and verse 10. Then they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Beloved, what motivates them is God's glory. So now let's go back to those hot button topics. What motivates you when you hear about same-sex attraction, gender confusion, abortion? Is it being right? Is it MAGA? Is it winning an argument? Is it somehow squelching the passion of those who would publicly declare a worldview different than the word of God in rebellion toward him? Or is it the glory of God? And here's a quote. What glorifies God more than sin being forgiven and sinners being transformed? Beloved, if you have people in your life who are struggling with same-sex attraction, people who are dressing in a way or acting in a way or wanting you to call them a name that is different than their biological God-given designation, if there's someone who comes up with what seems to be complicated arguments for the intentional taking of a life in the womb, Our first response is the glory of God and to direct them as quickly as we can, as lovingly as we can, and clearly as we can to the hope and the help that is found in Christ. May that be who we are as a sin church, beloved. May we stand on the convictions of God's word with the objective of the glory of God's name and seeing sinners forgiven and transformed. That's the only thing that can change somebody. It's not legislation It's not science. It's not a pill. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the saints are boldly asking how long. Verse 9 says, it's the lamb who opened, and it's the lamb who numbered. Look at verse 11. I love this. Until the number of your fellow servants and brothers should be complete. God is administrating authoritatively all of the details of this life. So this Christ administrates authoritatively Christian persecution. There's a third question to ask. How does Christ relate to final judgment? 
How does Christ relate to final judgment? So we've seen four horse, horses and their riders, I think, that simultaneously reveal the judgment of God on creation throughout all of time. We see this window into the saints that have gone before us, that have either been executed or just have died under, from other causes that are all joining in unison, saying, how long, how long until your name is magnified by sin being judged? And then there's this sixth seal, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, the stars of heaven of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit, and when shaken by a gale, and the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was being removed from its place, and the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, you stop right there and say that the descriptions change. You don't see limits anymore. It's not a fourth of creation, fourth of humanity. It's not some things in the economy can be touched and others can't. You're seeing very clear description here of something that takes place at a global level. And then you also see some Old Testament references. Let me give you a few of them. We'll put them up on the screen. Earthquakes throughout Revelation describe final judgment. Sun, moon, stars, and the sky having these descriptions describe final judgments of a nation or people group. There's some passages on the screen for you to write down. When the Bible talks about mountains crumbling and islands disappearing, it's describing final judgment of a people group. We don't see the limits that we saw earlier in the four horsemen. Here we see John described seven groups of people. Isn't that interesting? Number them. Seven groups of people. And in Revelation, anytime you see seven, it describes completeness. John is saying no longer is it sections of the world that are experiencing this. It's now happening at a global scale. He even says in verse 10, all who dwell on the earth, the enemies of God, but what's interesting is you see a different response with humanity than you do the saints, don't you? Instead of humanity calling out to God in worship, they are trying to avoid God. Here's a quote. The response of man to the clarity of God's character and the sinfulness of our hearts will elicit one of two responses, habel or worship. For those of you who were with us during the Ecclesiastes study, Habel is the Hebrew term translated vanity. When you see the character of God, if you have not been transformed by his gospel, if you're living according to the flesh, you're going to choose the world. You're going to choose something the world has to offer, whether it be hiding, whether it be running, whether it be uh, shaking your fist at God because of your power and your might. That's all Habel. But if you've been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ, when you see God in his character, you will fall to your knees and worship. Which brings forward the last quote, just like bad things in life and Christian persecution, the Christ of Scripture exercises administrative authority over timing, scope, and severity of final judgment. See, judgment has been taking place since Genesis 3. It continues in 2023. You can't necessarily look at life today and say, oh, it's so much worse than it was back in the 
third century or the 10th century or the 20th century. God's judgment continues to be poured out, but there will be a day when the great wrath of God will be poured out. And the Lamb of God is authoritatively administrating that. Which brings us to the final question, number four, how do you and I relate to this Christ? How do you and I relate to this Christ? Well, first of all, we must do what the believers in the days of Revelation did and what all believers throughout all time have done, and that is submit to the word of God. We see that in verse nine. Whatever the word of God says, we submit ourselves to that as our authority. What the Bible says about God, what the Bible says about us and our human condition, what the Bible says about the whole plan of God from beginning to end, we submit to that. But then second of all, we share the testimony of this word through our witness, just like verse 9. We do that by declaring to others what the truth of God's word is, that when our society is headed in a different direction, we courageously and graciously stand up for the truth. And when family conversations begin to go in a direction that shames God, we stand up for God. We declare the hope and the help that is found in Christ. We're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That is what the pattern and the characteristics of our lives are. We share this testimony through witness, but then third, we soak in the rest of his character That's actually a phrase that I love in verse 11. It says, those saints who were crying out how long were each given a white robe and told, look at this, to rest a little longer. What does it mean to rest in Christ? Well, let's not be people who say, well, I think it means this, or I feel it means this. Let's go to the scripture, Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who are weary, and heavy burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Mark 6, verse 31, in a very busy time of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, he says to his disciples, come away and rest with me for a while. What did that rest look like? Prayer, physical rest, studying God's word. 1 Corinthians 16, 18. 2 Corinthians 7, 13. Philemon 7.20 are all evidences of Paul saying that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we refresh, we rest one another. How do we do that? By encouraging each other toward Christ, encouraging each other in the word. That in this day and age when studies come and go, when popular opinions come and go, when Christian books come and go, we anchor ourselves in the timeless, inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God, and we find in it our rest. 